Coming up on Voices from the Front Lines, a reading of a podcast and play written by Eric Mann of the Strategy Center and Voices from the Front Lines, and read by some of the team members of the Strategy Center and Voices from the Front Lines. Take a listen and enjoy. Good afternoon, Voices from the Frontlines listeners. This is Eric Mann, excited about a new year. We're going to perform my radio play, Too Black to Fail, on Tuesday, January 5th, 2021, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Pacific Time. Really happy to be back on Voices. Too Black to Fail is a radio play and a future theater play and a possible screenplay that I wrote as one response to the police murder of George Floyd and the mass uprisings of May 25th, 2020 and beyond. Someone called Too Black to Fail magical realism. That was my intent. But I'm also a strategist and imagination is critical to taking on a far more powerful enemy as the U.S. imperialist white settler state. You have to imagine what you don't see in front of your own eyes, but believe you and others can bring it into being. But I'm also a historian, and Too Black to Fail reincarnates so many great Black and third world heroes and sheroes. It's also based on reconstructing the past to shape the future, because I really did see a revolution with my own eyes, And I helped to make it with CORE, SNCC, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Black Panthers, and most of all, as part of the worldwide movement to support the heroic people of Vietnam, who shaped the entire world's history from 1955 with their defeat of the French at Dien Bien Phu to 1975 with their defeat of the United States in Saigon. The idea of Too Black to Fail began in response to the great betrayal of Barack Obama in 2008, when he came to power with so many and so much promise, only to give $1 trillion to the banks to stop the great financial crisis of their own making and nothing to black people. Barack Obama said he had to do it because the banks were too big to fail. But the first black president of the United States did not say that black folks were too good to fail. I felt that portrayal very personally, as I knew and know so many Black people lost their homes under President Obama's love affair with Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, including so many in New Orleans, Harlem, and South Central Los Angeles. Now, the goal of Too Black to Fail is to encourage the revolutionary impulses that were generated by the police murder of George Floyd and the leadership of Black Lives Matter. But Too Black to Fail also takes you to the army of underwater ancestors as the 15 million enslaved Africans rise from the ocean 
and we also take the struggle to Palestine and Vietnam. I've been deeply moved by Sam Greenlee's The Spook Who Sat by the Door and the Black Communist Rebellion in The Man in the High Castle as vivid examples of Black-led rebellions where art and politics serve the same strategy. I offer Too Black to Fail in that spirit. In re-listening to Too Black to Fail, after several months, and yes, in a new year, I'm struck by the fine performances of Channing Martinez, Bridget Amaya, Barbara Holland, and KPFK, and Feminist Magazine's dynamic Kiana Williams. I have hopes that we can do a public reading of the radio play on a future Zoom performance. If you have any ties to people in the public performance, theater, or film world who want to help Too Black to Fail further succeed, please contact me at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com. All power to the people and enjoy Too Black to Fail. In June of 2020, a group of Black and Third World revolutionaries from Harlem, South Central LA, Minneapolis, Cape Town, London, Beijing, Caracas, and Havana met in Nairobi, Kenya at a clandestine strategy meeting. Already in deep dialogue, one of the delegates began cautiously to share her dream. But as she told it to the first comrade, he said with excitement, but also a sense of self-protection to avoid being seen as delusional that he had also the same dream. But there was a too impossible to believe outcome. Dozens, not hundreds, not thousands, but yes, dozens of people, all leading the black and third world resistance to the present racist onslaught had experienced the same dream. Not sort of the same, but word by word, step by step the same. And each time one person described a point in the plot, the next person could finish the sentence. That led to an escalation of the resistance, and if it can be believed, a future belief that a collapse of the U.S. imperialist white settler state was possible and that a revolutionary government could come to power. Now, I've been honored that they shared this story with me. Now, after going through channels, they've allowed us to tell their story. Now, it's being recorded in June 2020, but as you will see, the events we describe have already happened, for now we're in January 2021. They recorded their dreams with the hope that their revolutionary experiment in magical realism could come true. As you'll see, it did. If for any reason you learn of this before the events take place, swear yourself to secrecy, because the entire scenario took place because the revolutionaries kept their dreams to themselves until they made them happen. But what a story. It begins with how the Too Black to Fail movement added another battalion to the growing revolutionary army against the U.S. imperialist white settler state, and how the army of revolutionary ancestors, oh, but wait, I'm getting ahead of my story. Let the story tell itself. In the fall of 2020, the Too Black to Fail revolutionary moment exploded out of the urban rebellion sparked by the United States government. There was the COVID-19 Black Death strategy of the U.S. government that killed more than 10,000 additional Black people as whites escaped COVID-19's worst wrath. Then there was the police murder of Breonna Taylor, the Klan murder of Ahmad Avery, 
the police murder of George Floyd. And as the Black nation grieved, the Atlanta police made it clear that defund the police is the only solution. They murdered Richard Brooks by shooting him in the back. Then as Trump, the business elite, and the white racist demanded to open up the white economy despite a continued threat of COVID-19, we saw what we knew all along but could barely imagine. There in front of our eyes was the economic and social pandemic. The Black economy was devastated. Then in August and September, the U.S. corporations, more afraid of losing their customers to Amazon, DocuSign, and Zoom, demanded to open up the economy. And Trump and company said, okay, this is going to be great. You are on your own. Only then, when the pandemic was still lethal, but the system was forced open, Black people and their allies began to calculate the terrible toll of the economic and social pain of the white virus. Starting in March, as COVID-19 exposed the joke of the U.S. public health system, especially for Black, Latinx, and low-income people, the U.S. Congress passed a massive $2 trillion measure to prop up failing corporations. They gave massive loans and grants to airlines, casinos, $1,200 grants for people with bank accounts, increased unemployment benefits. What about those with no jobs on the books as employers paid cash to avoid taxes? What about millions in the informal economy, jobs where there are no contracts, no records, no official employment, and no unemployment insurance? What about so many Black, Puerto Rican, Latina women trapped in their homes carrying out unpaid labor? What about other working women in white folks' homes propping up their privileged lives while not having enough time and energy to manage their own, which somehow they still always find but a great cost to themselves? As the dust settled, it became clear that an economic and social pandemic had rained down on the Black masses. A catastrophe of homelessness, Black businesses closed for good, entire families out of income, restricted food stamps programs. This escalated the already astronomical Black unemployment, especially among youth and Black men, but Black people of every age and gender. More evictions, foreclosures, homelessness, and the greater police brutality and occupation. But what happened to the small Black-owned businesses? the heart and soul of the Black communities, the economic and cultural meeting centers that were miraculously surviving in the midst of a predatory McDonald's and other voracious corporation chains. It became clear that they were decimated with no billions, no millions, no thousands from the Republicans or the Democrats. So now there's Popeyes, owned by Restaurant Brands International, a massive white conglomerate that owns Burger King and Tim Hortons, and is there to force out local businesses. In 2009, President Obama and the U.S. Treasury used more than $1 trillion to bail out the banks whose fraud had precipitated a catastrophic financial crisis. His mantra was that while they were morally wrong, he had to bail them out because they were too big to fail. In 2020, President Trump, the Federal Reserve, and the U.S. Treasury Department printed more than $5 trillion out of thin air, 
again to bail out corporations, casinos, cruise lines, and airlines while black folks stood in bread lines. Trump says that they were too rich to fail, too weak to fail, too corrupt to fail, and the joke overheard among leaders of both parties was too white to fail. That was the last straw. Out of the perfect storm of racism and imperialism, the too black to fail revolutionary movement exploded on the scene, influenced by and joining the revolution already in progress. Too black to fail demanded $5 trillion in reparations now to rebuild black communities, black businesses, black food and economic cooperatives. They knew the US government had the money because it had just printed $5 trillion with no collateral to back it up. Why? Because they could. No more too big to fail, too pathetic to fail, no more too white to fail. This time it was too black to fail. The leaders of Too Black to Fail said, no, don't stop the presses. Start printing that money right now, as you did for the rich and the white. And we don't mean millions. We don't mean billions. We're using your new word, trillions. Then Too Black to Fail demanded that 50% of all public and private sector jobs must go to Black applicants. They demanded that every city ran by Democrats and every federal government run by fascists must double the budget, not cut the budget for essential social services. They demanded that the U.S. cut its $700 billion military budget by 50% and close down all 800 military bases. They called for extra funding for any government services with the highest black workforce. They called it the black bonus. They said when Trump cut off the cities and the Democratic mayors cut the hospitals, not the police, they are in on the crime. Too Black to Fail was deeply rooted in the work of William L. Patterson, the great black communist attorney who wrote the legal indictment we charged genocide for the crimes of the U.S. government against the Negro people in 1951. Yes, 1951. They were rooted in the work of Queen Mother Moore, founder of the Committee for Reparations of Descendants of U.S. Slaves. Queen Mother was also a founding member of the Republic of New Africa to fight for self-determination, land, and reparations. The principle of pan-Africanism, reparations and an end to U.S. genocide against the Black nation guided the work of the Too Black to Fail movement. The Too Black to Fail revolutionary movement drafted a statement that was greeted with enthusiasm by the larger movement and reflected by now a strong Black and revolutionary consensus. Our communities demand at least five trillion and more until we tell you to stop. This is the first step, not the last. We hold you responsible forever for your crimes in the transatlantic enslavement, torture, and brutalization of 15 million Africans. We hold you responsible in perpetuity for the crimes of Jim Crow, the new Jim Crow, slavery by any other name, the racist enslavement complex, and the present police holocaust against the Black nation. 
we situate ourselves in an anti-colonial, anti-imperialist tradition of our people. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Stokely Carmichael said, hell no, we won't go to Vietnam. Muhammad Ali said, my conscience won't let me shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother or some darker people or some poor hungry people in the mud for big, powerful America. And Dr. King told it like it is. The United States, my government, is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. They asked if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghetto without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. The leaders of Too Black to Fail concluded, we do not want a better place in the empire. We will work for the fall of the U.S. empire once and for all. Then, having won its place in history, the Too Black to Fail movement marched into the People's Army of 10 million with Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives, and other Black, Indigenous, Latinx groups, and millions of white anti-racist soldiers in the broadest united front against racism and empire. Out of that explosion, the movement developed a core program, tearing down the police and military state among them. But as group after group joined the revolution and the system made its mistakes of epic proportion, the Black Liberation Movement, as part of a third world revolutionary of category 10 proportions, began to understand it could smash the US white settler state once and for all. So that's the opening scene of the pilot, episode one. A reality show so real that by the time you see it, it's old news. Gil Scott Heron's admonition was even more relevant now. Black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers and sisters, the revolution will be live. The revolution will be live. So join us on this journey and suspend disbelief. There really is a revolution in your future and sooner than you would believe. Episode two, the revolution explodes forward. The long, hot summer of 2020 continued into a hotter fall as the U.S. presidential elections provided the final spark that kept the prairie fire going, ignited by 500 years of anti-colonial resistance to U.S.-European genocide. This was further ignited by global warming raining down on the earthlings and the capitalist deniers with a massive heat wave that led to revolutionary cries from sub-Saharan Africa. Let the United States burn in hell for its crimes against Africa. The droughts, the floods, the erosion of our soil, and every dictator in and out of power is financed by the US CIA. 
all of Africa would join and help lead the world revolution against the U.S. and European colonialists. The movement mourned George Floyd, who, like Trayvon Martin, Medgar Evers, and Emmett Till, had become the defining symbol and moment in millions of people's lives. People watched over and over again in such great pain to see the police murder of George Floyd, eight minutes and 46 seconds of hell as he cried for his deceased mother and cried, I can't breathe. But this was not the first or the second or the third. But yes, it did horrify even the liberals who had to see what we have been trying to get them to see for centuries. Didn't they see the horrific footage of the police murder of Eric Garner in 2014? Now, despite massive demonstrations about the deaths of Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and so many others that took place on his watch, President Barack Obama chose to do nothing but try to co-opt the anger. The movement did deep reflection of the present efforts at co-optation and cessation of demands by Black, Latinx, white mayors, and police chiefs acting as born-again Black revolutionaries, but fighting to keep the structures of oppression intact. This time, Brother George Floyd, as a martyr in death, brought life to millions of Black children, parents, and grandparents. And yes, millions of Latino people, millions of indigenous people, and yes, millions of white people. His life and death and the movement ignited inspired people all over the world, from South African blacks fighting against neocolonialism to blacks fighting for liberation in racist England. But if the white racist forces had a moment of retreat and reorganization, they came back with a vengeance in all their inbred melanin deficiencies. The Klan the White Citizens Council, the police benevolent unions created a new structure, the White Aryan Defense Committee for Counter-Revolution, and yes, sadly, they had Black and Latino members as well. They demanded open up the economy and send more Black people to their deaths. As Jake Flukers, a UAW militant from GM Van Nuys, now in Shreveport, observed, in Louisiana, we make up 70% of the deaths. And I know many Black families have suffered beyond description. That's why the white folks have guns to demand they reopen everything. Those of us they don't kill, they want the virus to do the job. If white folks were 70% of the dead, they would demand shelter in place for life with full benefits. As the armed white mobs continued to protest, they faced a new army of Black Second Amendment groups. And for the first time, we see the initial entrance of the Army of the Revolutionary Ancestors as Huey P. Noon, Bobby Seale, John Brown, and the leaders of the Deacons of Defense joined the movement. All of them were packing with copies of Robert F. Williams' Negroes with Guns. People weren't sure if it was a hope, an omen, a vision, or a material reality. But whatever it was, just the idea of an army of revolutionary ancestors raised the morale of the troops. Little did they know, all those concepts were true, and millions of real allies were coming their way. The general strike of Black and Third World essential workers. As the heat from global warming became truly unbearable, 
the hospitals became overrun with patients from COVID-19 and heat stroke. The healthcare system did not have enough hospitals, masks, ventilators, beds, not enough doctors, nurses, or nurses' aides. The dangerous work required two days on, two days off, and 14 days for quarantine, none of which they received. And while Anderson Cooper and other liberal Democrats made general statements, you're so underpaid, neither he nor anyone else volunteered to pay anyone. Finally, in spite of their great work ethic and love of the patients, the many black, Latina, Dominican, Haitian hospital workers, nurses, nursing home workers, and even inner city doctors finally had enough. Despite all the false gratitude from the system for putting their lives at risk, the essential workers finally went on strike. If we are so damn essential, why are you killing us? They told the rich white doctors and business people to clean the floors of the hospitals, take out the corpses, and do all the essential work that would put their white lives in danger. They joined the People's Revolutionary Army. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, more Too Black to Fail podcast, written by Eric Mann of Voices from the Front Lines. You're listening to 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. Stay tuned. strikes again. As the movement grew, they were met with another white wall. Now there was another wave of white and middle-class backlash, even among some of their newfound allies. They explained, don't get us wrong. We're still deeply upset, but aren't you going a little too far, too fast? Aren't you hurting the very people you're trying to help? You can't deny that the police are hiring new chiefs, banding chokeholds, getting better body cameras, even passing laws to better prosecute the bad apples. And can we talk realistically? Donald Trump is the main danger. Don't you agree? The elections are in three months and we have to unite around Biden and the Democrats. This is your great chance. Don't give up. Just slow down a little. Let's get rid of Trump, and then you can protest again. But we still need white moderate voters. You yourself said it's a white settler state. So until we change, we need the middle class, white women in Peoria. And how can I say this effectively? 
you people are turning her off. Contrary to the stereotype, most of the leaders of the movement understood those concerns, but they answered. You know, some of us do believe in defeating Trump. It's critical, but most of our members have had one, five, 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years of sabotage and repression by the Democrats, from Johnson to Clinton to Obama. We live in the cities where the Democrats rule with an iron fist and build up police budgets, from Mayor Bill de Blasio to Mayor Eric Garcetti and everyone in between the coats. Who put all the Black folks in jail? Bill and Hillary Clinton with their super predator and effective death penalty act. Who drove women off of subsistence government programs with the slogan, ending the welfare as we know it? Clinton from Arkansas, Gore from Tennessee, one on the time to elect two cracker platform. And what of Barack Obama? He won with all of our help. He had a landslide victory, control of the House and the Senate. He did nothing for Black folks and build up the police and the military. And stop with these disillusioned revolutionaries and former new communists who have now become Democratic Party apologists. Our movement must continue. Tell the Democrats to support our demands instead of asking us to support their electoral aspirations. The revolutionary movement organized a march to take over Washington. At first, like the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom, it hoped for 50,000 people, then 100,000 people. And by August 28, 1963, there were more than 250,000 people that were there. Not without apprehension, they all agreed that the movement needed to keep the political initiative. The march to take over and take down Washington was picking up momentum, but faced with growing forces against them. The leaders meditated, chanted, danced, drummed, and shouted to the sky, we need more troops. We call on our gods to come to the rescue. Episode four, the rise of the army of revolutionary ancestors. To their amazement, their prayers were answered. At first a dozen, then several hundred, then thousands, and yes, tens of millions of veterans of the Army of Revolutionary Ancestors answered their call. The ARA was led by tens of thousands of great revolutionary leaders throughout history. Its first line was led by the revolutionary heroes and sheroes who had earned their right to lead. There was Tecumseh and Sitting Bull, Toussaint Louverture and Kwame Nkrumah, Martin Delaney and Frederick Douglass, Fannie Lou Hamer and Claudia Jones, Cesar Chavez and Hugo Chavez, Gloria Richardson, Che Guevara and Mao Zedong, and of course, Dr. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Their ranks were filled with General Marcus Garvey of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Cyril Briggs of the African Blood Brotherhood, and W.E.B. Du Bois and his Pan-African comrades wearing his Niagara Movement t-shirt and Communist Party hat, chanting his brilliant indictment, the U.S. is the land of the thief and the home of the slave, and then the greatest miracle of all. 
15 million enslaved Africans, forming the African Underwater Revolutionary Front, arose from the oceans. They had been there for centuries, building a cooperative maroon colony with their indigenous people in alliance with the fish, plankton, and whales, preparing for this moment. They were treated as revolutionary royalty, which they were. Each person spoke in their original African tongue. They watched in awe as Ho Chi Minh, the veterans of the National Liberation Front of Vietnam, and the greatest revolutionary general of all time, Vo Nguyen Jop, marched in unison chanting, Black Lives Matter, national liberation, not neocolonialism of the third world now. Imagine millions of troops stopping at the side of the road, reading Jop's How We Won the War. The astounding story of how Vietnam defeated the U.S. in a protracted people's war. But Jop was there, explaining his theories of the link between policy and strategy, which leads to what he called his operational approach. Young organizers were in awe that the greatest anti-imperialist military genius of all time, who defeated the French, and then the U.S. in endless decisive battle was on their side. They stayed up all night reading his political and military theory and assumed the march with much greater confidence and focus the next morning, as they said to each other. So the revolution is now, but then for a long time forward as well. I have more confidence in wearing the system down with the art of maneuver. Fannie Lou Hamer from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party chanted, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Hugo Chavez from Venezuela called for third world socialism. Amilcar Cabral from Guinea-Bissau proclaimed, this is no lie. We will claim victory. They were joined by black pro-communist and communist royalty, Claudia Jones, Ben Davis, Langston Hughes, Perry Haywood, Louise Patterson, William L. Patterson, and the great Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois and the magnificent Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. Young organizers were so impressed that it was the Communist Party that led the fight against the legal lynchings of the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama and stopped the executions. They learned about the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s and how the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, 2,000 U.S. Communists, and their supporters went to Spain to fight on the side of the democratic forces against Franco and Hitler's fascism in the Spanish Civil War. At a time of such racism, they were so impressed to learn that almost 100 years ago, the U.S. troops were led by many courageous leaders, including Oliver Law, a black commander who, like many of his compatriots, was killed in battle. Then millions more marched. The veterans of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and the Bandung Conference of Non-Aligned Nations. They were joined by millions who participated in the 1965 Harlem Rebellion, the 1967 Newark Rebellion, the Watts Rebellion of 1965, the Rodney King L.A. Rebellion of 1992, and the rebellion that sparked the final battle the Minneapolis and the national and international rebellions to avenge the death of George Floyd and the millions of black martyrs who preceded him. Overhead, they saw with awe, if at first disbelief, 
the squadron of the resurrected martyrs flying in formation. They were led by a defiant Emmett Till, Sandra Bland, Brianna Taylor, James Cheney, Medgar Evers, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. They were joined by John Brown, Mickey Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, Viola Liuzzo, and Reverend James Reeb, whites who put their bodies on the line and gave their lives for black liberation. They all chanted, free the prisoners, arrest the police. Free the prisoners, arrest the Klan. They were joined by the past, present, and future alliance, Black Lives Matter, Movement for Black Lives, the Dream Defenders, Rising Majority, Black Youth Project 100, We Charge Genocide, Asada's Daughters, Bus Riders Union and the Dreamers. As the troops were approaching Washington, now defended by most of the 800,000 U.S. police and hundreds of thousands of U.S. military armed to the teeth, even the most courageous began to discuss ways of avoiding an armed confrontation with fundamentally unarmed protesters. They were approached in a clandestine meeting with Joe Biden, Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and other Democratic leaders who had played the most sympathetic roles in the post-George Floyd revolutionary period. Listen, guys, you may not believe we're on your side, but we are more than you can imagine. Okay, we admit we've let you down, but this Trump and his fascists are not a joke. We fear he'll set up a military government and not relinquish the White House. And trust us, not all the army is going to side with us. We don't control the Senate, but we'll move every Democratic mayor, governor, and major donors to move money and support your movement. Barack and Michelle, now the heads of Netflix, after they pushed out Reed Hastings, promised to live stream the revolution and do everything they could to win the Silicon Valley groups to independently finance many of the revolutionary demands. All they asked is for the movement to turn back. The revolutionary leaders were listening. These were not the well-meaning white liberals. This was the ruling class. Now, they agreed they needed a united front with the Democrats, but they had to build their own independence and keep up independent pressure, demands, and win major victories. So the movement made a counterproposal. So if you think the fascists are so dangerous, then you join the march. 
You'll be right in the front with us. We'll make it clear it's nonviolent, but we will retain our right to self-defense. Now we're gonna change the name of the march to the March on Washington for self-determination and black lives, but we will not turn back. If you fear a bloodbath, then march on the front lines with us and we'll either live or die together. Oh, said the Democrats. We know there's a song, We Shall Never Turn Back. We even sing it when we try to get the black vote. But you actually mean it. Faced with the possibility of the U.S. military siding with Trump and a true racist massacre, the Democrat liberals were forced to join the march. They called every force they had in the U.S. Army and yes, helped by Colin Powell, the U.S. Army refused to defend the White House against its own people. The movement had forced others into its united front. Now, both sides need each other, and the movement leaders did a lot of talking about when we get to back to Washington, we have to build a deeper base and even more independent institutions. The march on Washington was an enormous success. Martin Luther King gave his now famous, what part of my dream don't you understand, fools, with prophetic words. Now you're pushing my nonviolence to its last nerve. I said we came here to cash a check, marked insufficient funds. I said we're exiles in this own land. Now it should be clear that the black people need our own land. And let's discuss how many states that will take in the black belt south. That was Dr. King's dream that they didn't want to talk about. Now Malcolm X, who had called the original march on Washington, the farce on Washington said, I have a dream that the white settler state will be overthrown once and for all. Barack and Michelle said, this is gonna be a wonderful film. And we're proud to be marching with you nonviolently. But the greatest speeches were from General Von Yunschop, who implored the crowd, move forward, move back. Always take the tactical initiative. Do not engage in fixed battles, but exhaust the enemy, hit and run. And over time, their own troops will abandon them and come over to your side. Sure enough, many black National Guardsmen took off their uniforms and put on Black Lives Matter t-shirts. They joined the movement and they asked for General Giap's autograph. Then Toussaint Louverture said, the disgusting French were driven out of Haiti, but they imposed reparations and took me back to France where they killed me in prison. But I'm back to demand free Haiti. No more reparations to the French and trillions for the rebuilding of Haiti. The crowd yelled, free, free Haiti, reparations now. Now the reparations movement for blacks in the US, the nations of Africa and those in the African diaspora, they also demand reparations for the people of Vietnam. Imagine that the people of Vietnam still suffer from US landmines the horrific effects of Agent Orange on newborn babies 45 years later. The audience demanded trillions for the third world, trillions for Haiti, trillions for Vietnam, defund the police, defund the military. Joe Biden tried not to speak, but the crowd demanded his presence. He stumbled to the mic and said, have I ever tell you the story about, they said, get to the point, dude. He was shouted down. Support the program, support our demands, the crowd chanted. And Joe said, I think I'll appoint a black woman vice president. The crowd answered, 
Fannie Lou Hamer, Fannie Lou Hamer, Black Lives Matter. Not a black prosecutor, not a black national security CIA agent. But movement people were careful to not get too involved. Let him appoint whoever he wants. This is not our party, and let's not get co-opted. Let's focus on our demands, our own movement, and get whoever they run to bend to our will. At the March on Washington, the movement put forth its independent program. The Too Black to Fail Act, the U.S. Treasury must print an additional $5 trillion for Black Reconstruction and also match that with an additional $5 trillion from confiscation of corporate, government, and white wealth. This will be used for Black community construction of food cooperatives, housing cooperatives, healthcare cooperatives, as well as income maintenance for all people in the Americas in that citizenship is no longer a category. All Black residents who are six months behind in back rent get to own the property. The Black cooperative movement was led by Black farmers driven off their land since the end of slavery, who along with Indigenous and Mexican farmers use Indigenous and African traditional knowledge to reconstruct a new economy. The Too Black to Fail movement made expansion of Indian sovereignty and massive repatriation of white settler state land back to the people whose moral claim to the land is perpetual and infinite. Then they called for the Make America Black Again Act, a massive return of Black people dispersed all over the U.S. to the key urban center of their previous concentration. 100,000 Black people returned to New Orleans, 100,000 Black people returned to Harlem, and 350,000 Black residents forced out of Los Angeles with massive repatriation in Houston, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, and every Black city and town in the United States. Whites for Black Liberation organized a Give Back Your Ill-Gotten Gains, led by the children of white gentrifiers, forcing some and convincing others to contribute their home to the movement and take advantage of great public housing provided for all. The Make America Black Again movement called for the right of return of Black people, Indigenous people, Mexican and Chicano people, who all supported the right of return for the Palestinian people back to their homeland in Palestine, and who initiated the prophetic demand. The Palestinians estimate 5 million refugees and their parents would exercise that right. Emmett Till and the squadron of the resurrected martyrs flew over the Israeli concentration camps in Gaza, chanting, Free, Free Palestine. Two million imprisoned Palestinians saw them as an inspirational apparition, while their Israeli prison guards could not see them at all. In return, the Palestinians chanted, Too Black to Fail, in Arabic, while children who had never seen life outside of the barbed wire levitated out of the camps in revolutionary ascension while their Israeli captors fled back into the Red Sea. The Reparations Now Act called for a massive network of HBCUs, community colleges, and community cultural centers as the floor for future demands. The long-standing call for reparations as a frontal assault on the history and legitimacy of the white settlers' date and a structural and collective black liberation movement, as always in black history, 
reached out to indigenous and all third world people as an instinctive and conscious strategy. Reparations as power and consciousness involve reading an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, Black Reconstruction America by W.E.B. Du Bois, How Europe Undeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, and The Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. Then they demanded the Black New Africa Climate Act. This was to supersede the Green New Deal, the Black New Africa Climate Act. The marches demanded the U.S. cut all U.S. fossil fuel production and consumption by 50% of 2005 levels by 2025 and adopted the Bus Riders Union, free public transportation, no cars in the U.S. campaign as a radical program for greenhouse gas reduction emissions from autos. They demanded the U.S. must make an immediate grant of $2 trillion in climate reparations to the third world for wind, solar, and zero-emission energy in return for U.S. climate crimes. The Dr. King Beyond Vietnam Act, they demanded, the U.S. must cut all U.S. police and military budgets by 50%, and then 50% again and again. This also involved closing down all 800 U.S. military bases of occupation all over the world and signing non-aggression and nuclear disarmament pacts with China, India, Pakistan, and Russia as a massive campaign for nuclear disarmament. Then they demanded the right of self-determination of black people, Latinos, and indigenous peoples inside the U.S., up into and including the right of secession. The movement envisioned the revolution as dismantling the forced indivisibility of the United States. No more one nation indivisible. Now they demanded a revolutionary federation of the Americas, from Alaska to Cape Horn, as such, in order to protect cultural and political autonomy and self-determination, each oppressed group would have the right of secession. So if it would take a voluntary union of peoples to hold together and build the new revolutionary federation of the Americas. Let's be clear. The Trump forces were still in power. The Democrats did not agree to any of these demands. But it did move their program far to the left to accommodate as little as possible but as much as necessary to keep the movement in its coalition until after the election when the Democrats would, as they say, reevaluate any promises made. In late October 2020, the revolutionary movement and the United Front with the Democrats were given the political opportunity of a lifetime. Donald Trump, his hands shaking from a neurological disorder, his mind deteriorating from an overdose of racism, retreated deep into his bunker under Trump Tower with a bottle of cyanide in one hand and his cell phone in the other. He tweeted out that he was canceling the 2020 elections because the Democrats were using fake votes to come to power. He announced he was installing himself as emperor for life, telling his supporters, this can be great, I mean really great, and the best ever, and I'm the only man for the job. The only way to prevent a fraudulent election is not to have one. Millions of white fascists, armed to the teeth and willing to die for their cause, tweeted back assent. Then the terrified Democrats, never having fought for anything except the protection of corporate power, facing the armies of Trump on one side 
and the Aryan Confederacy had no choice but to do what the Republicans did during the Civil War. They made major concessions to the enslaved so that they would be the decisive fighting force against the more racist whites. They passed legislation for massive grants to black communities. Yes, in their trillions. Immediately, the U.S. government gave assistance in the trillions for blacks to return to their homes in U.S. cities. The U.S. government immediately cut off all federal funding to U.S. police forces as the first step. And yes, gave another $5 trillion to black urban and rural reconstruction. As Trump declared himself emperor, the Democrats formed a coalition government and with the support of most of the military, took over the Congress and convicted Trump of high crimes and misdemeanors. Trump was arrested and placed in a federal prison in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so we could celebrate Juneteenth every year as he had hoped. This is the end of season one. Here is the trailer for season two of Too Black to Fail, La Luta Continua. Trump escapes from custody with the help of the Aryan nation and enters into negotiations with Richard Branson a Virgin Space and Elon Musk of SpaceX for a mass exodus of his forces to set up a new colony on Mars with him as emperor. But what would the Democrats do into the 2020 election? Where would the movement go from here? We will see future conflicts among the leaders, disagreements on what the movement promises and what it got. Will the movement weaken or fall apart as racial, national, and factional differences reemerge? No, there will be new heroes and sheroes who will keep the united front and revolutionary initiative now that Trump has fled the scene. And they will lead the movement against the Democrats. But the Democrats feel more confident. Will the Democrats portray the revolution? Spoiler alert, they will. But how? And how will the movement respond? Season two will be available soon.